The past five weeks, we have been, if you count this week, it's five weeks, we've been studying this verse. And it might be on the screen, it might not, but it goes like this. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now that last line is unique to Matthew. Luke talks about the Lord's Prayer, and there's this tagline that when we all say it, everyone wants to say, for thine is the kingdom and the glory forever, amen, which is wonderful and true. But Jesus ended his prayer this way. That line of Luke is debated whether Jesus actually said it or not. And we kind of added it at the end because uh, no one wants to end on the phrase, deliver us from evil. And that kind of, it's kind of like a, oh, that's a downer, What? Because we don't want to talk about delivering us from evil. It's uncomfortable. So we want to end with victory. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Yes, we want that. Deliver us from evil is what we're looking at today. And it's something that we need to pay attention to. It's uncomfortable. Uh, It's intentional. It's a sobering wake-up call uh, that we'd rather not consider. Uh, when we look at scriptures, and I believe the scriptures are authoritative in every aspect of life, and, and we look at this, and we look at this line here, we can't avoid it. Uh, we can't skip over and get to the happy part. We have to look at this part, which means there's going to be some conflict. It's an uncomfortable topic. It's a scary topic, but it doesn't need to be, and we need to pay attention. The topic of spiritual warfare is one we like to avoid, and I'll be honest, I I talk about it at small groups or in speaking settings, and I always get the look of, you are crazy. Why are we talking about spiritual warfare? They think I'm talking about a horror story or something like that. People get real uncomfortable with, with it, but the Bible is clear. You and I, whether we want to admit it or not, whether we want to take a look at it or not, are in a battle. And every split second, every square inch of our lives is claimed by God and then counterclaimed by Satan. Whether you like it or not, whether you admit to it, to it or not, whether you agree with it or not, you are in a war. And the sooner we wake up to this idea that you and I are in a battle, that we are in a war, the sooner we can join the fight. One author said this, that there's no neutral ground in this battle. There's no neutral people. We have to pick a side. We don't have the luxury of being conscientious objectors on this one. And so every time you step in to pray, every time you step outside, every time you wake up, we step onto the battlefield. But we step onto the battlefield as victors. And in this fight, we don't use conventional weapons or conventional tactics. It's not like we're handed a a, a Kevlar vest and and a machine gun. No, this is a spiritual war. Every time we clench our hands in prayer, we take up arms in fighting. Just like with any war being waged, there's some rules that we have to, or some principles that we have to get to. And I'm not going to be able to cover all of them today. We'll cover a few. We have to know three things that when we fight this battle... First thing about when when you fight any war, when you fight any kind of battle, you have to know who you're fighting. And then you have to know the authority that's behind you when you're fighting. Then you have to know how to fight. And so the first thing we need to look at as we step into the spiritual battle, that congratulations, you're all in it right now. You have to know who your enemy is. Paul says it this way. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Peter names the enemy when he says this, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, Prowls like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. 
Jesus said in the end of, as he's wrapping up dinner at the Last Supper, says, Satan has requested to stift you like wheat. So we have to be able to name this. We are in a battle against Satan. And if you and I are going to fight well, we need to be honest about whom we are fighting. Satan, the devil, the evil one, Lucifer, the father of lies. All of this is the same person, the same force that you and I are up against right now, when you leave, when you woke up this morning, and sometimes even in your dreams. Notice this. Jesus names one single being. Paul names one single being. Jude The shortest book names one single person. Peter names one single person. It's valuable that we look at this. We're fighting someone. We're not fighting things. We're fighting Satan here. Our fight is against Satan, not against his tactics. Here's what I mean. Satan does not have the power to create. Okay. When you look at the Garden of Eden, God created everything. Satan did not create. Satan's power is to come, manipulate, distort, and destroy things that are already created. For example, in Genesis, uh, God created everything, right? He created all the trees and the fruit, okay? What did Satan use to tempt Eve? Fruit. Did Satan create that fruit? No. The fruit was good. It was created on day four. God said it was good, and he moved on and made other things. Satan took the good thing, fruit, and said, try this. And he distorted it to evil. Now, there was a warning when God created that fruit, said, don't eat this, but never does God call that fruit bad. It was good the whole time. He says, don't eat this. The ramifications of you eating will not be good. But God created the tree, and it produced a good fruit. Satan took the fruit, twisted it into a temptation, and said, did God really say this? What if? So Satan takes something and distorts it. He does this all the time. We look at life. Is life good? Absolutely. Living things are great. It's good to be alive. Life is good. Satan takes life, distorts it, creates murder. Bad. God made food. How many of us love food? Yes. Is food good? Depends who's cooking. Yes. (laughs) Gluttony, the wrong use of food, is evil. Sex is good. God created sex to be used in the confines of marriage. Sex is a good thing. Satan takes sex, twists it, and makes it evil. Here's why it's important to make this distinction. Because we tend to blame the object being used for evil instead of naming the entity behind that is causing evil. And so we'll blame other things. We'll blame the neighborhood. Well, that neighborhood is just bad. If you get out of that neighborhood, everything will be fine. Not necessarily. The system is evil. The parents are evil. The political party is evil. The pharmaceutical product that's being misused is evil. And sometimes even the church is evil. Is that true? No, those things are all used for good. The pharmaceutical product that's being misused on the streets has a medical benefit that they use in hospitals. It's good. It's being misused. It's being destroyed. It's being manipulated. You see how this works. We want to blame the symptoms of the problem and we because we're Honestly, I think we're too scared to name the causer of the problem. This is why when we're tempted, usually the temptation that we're facing comes out of a good thing, and then it is being misused for evil. The evil we're against has a name. And when we focus on the symptoms, we focus on the political things, we focus on the topics of the day, we reduce the name of evil to the symptom, and we end up ignoring it. 
We look at the influences. Instead, when we do this, we give Satan more power because we're ignoring that he actually exists. It's like when you have a cold, you don't want to, you can't treat the cold, you treat just the symptoms. The cold is still alive and going, and until you get the real treatment, it's not going to do anything about it. Evil stirs and tempts everyone within their capacity and bends towards hate. It bends towards abuse, uh, both of themselves and or others. There's a line that's been used in, it was used in several movies, the, uh, the, What's the one with Kevin Spacey? Kaiser Sose used it, and we always think that he did it. The Usual Suspects, great movie. And, and then we think C.S. Lewis said it, but he got it from somebody. And then we think uh, this one author said it back in France, but we don't know who it came from. It happened in the 1800s. It says the greatest trick the devil ever did was convince the world he did not exist. Because when you don't know who your enemy is, you don't know who you're fighting. And we don't know who you're fighting. You're fighting everything and anything, and the enemy walks away scot-free. Once we can name that we are in a battle against Satan, we can stand up and fight and pray against the way in which he works. We can see in places in our lives where he works and he twists and he distorts things for good and evil. Uh, what is something that you think is evil? You think of an object, well, that thing is evil. Is that thing evil or is it being used for evil? Satan likes to take the things that are good or neutral and distort them for his purposes. We must know our enemy. We need to be able to say, this is what Satan, this is Satan, this is the devil. This is evil. And it comes from the person behind evil. So once we can realize the first thing, you and I are in a battle, and we're in a battle against something, not against some things. We're in a battle against someone. We're in a fight. And now that we can name our fight, we can move on to the next one. We have to understand in the middle of our fight that you and I have authority. So when I was growing up, I had a dog. His name was Tug, uh, Tugger. And his favorite game to play ever since he was a puppy was tug of war. He lost a tooth once because he was pulling on that, one of his baby teeth. And he would just pull and pull and pull. And so the name Tug kind of fit. He was a 110-pound lap dog. Uh, he was a Labrador retriever, and he was one of the big, heavy ones. He was awesome. I would take Tug to dog parks, and he would run around, and Tug played nice with others, and so I didn't really worry about it. He was just all about the good time. But Tug also caught his fair share of rabbits and possums, and one time he got a skunk. That was terrible. But he had the ability to fight. And so we're at this beach, and uh, Huntington Beach, and there's a dog park. Tug's swimming, and then Tug comes running up. And then there was this little, they call it a dog, uh, I'm sorry if this offends you. It was one of those Maltese. You can hold it like this. Okay, it's mostly fur. And Tug comes eyeball to eyeball with this thing. And there's like a standoff. And I'm thinking, ah, oh, this will be fine. Worst thing comes to worst, Tug has a snack, uh, an appetizer. But all of a sudden, they're locked eye to eye. And I'm like, this, this probably isn't going to go well. And they do their dog thing. They, they kind of square off. And all of a sudden, this 110-pound dog gets on the ground and cowers to this Maltese. I'm broke. I'm like, what? Are you kidding me, Tug? Don't back down from that. You can win this. And, and I share this because we have that same kind of authority. We're in a fight, and we don't need to cower to it. We've already won the battle. Christ won the battle on the cross. We'll celebrate that on Good Friday. We have the authority to win, but what usually happens is you and I come face to face with evil, and we have the authority to win, and the first thing we do is surrender. 
even though we have no reason to. We're terrified of our enemy. So the moment we face it, we roll over and submit. Paul addresses this problem in Ephesians. He writes this letter to Ephesus, and Ephesus had a whole bunch of problems. There was the occult, there was idolatry, there was weird sexual stuff happening. So Paul reminds them that in the midst of what's happening in them, that they are actually stronger than the dark forces that are in their city. He writes them and says this in Ephesians 1, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but in the age to come. Paul gives us this stunning word picture. And in, in Paul's writing, in, in especially in Ephesians 1, he uses this word in Christ, in Christ. When you are in Christ, that power that has just been named belongs to you. You have it. You wield that kind of power that no name invoked can stand against. That's what you have. So many of us walk around in this fight against the spiritual battles, and we're afraid because we don't think we can fight. No, no, no. The power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that is in you. You have no reason to be afraid of it. You have no reason to give up. Paul gives this awesome picture of Jesus high and lifted up. And then he says, in charge of it all. God is in charge of it all. And because you are in Christ, so are you. He says that those who are in Christ are right up there in heaven. And God's ra- God raised Christ up from the dead and seated him at the heavenly realms. So we have been seated up at the heavenly realms with Christ. And the more you study the language that Paul uses, it's mind-blowing. He says, I hope that you will grab onto this. And there's this word, katalablamo, and, and I didn't write any notes about it, but it means once you get to the bottom of it, there's even more, and then there's even more, and then there's even more. You will never grasp the power that you have. So instead of running from this enemy, Paul's telling the people of Ephesus, whose culture was probably a lot worse than ours, you have power over it. There's no reason to run. Instead of running, exercise your authority from above. We don't have to roll over and submit to Satan's schemes because we are sons and daughters of the king commissioned to fight by his side and he's on our side. There's nothing to to surrender to. The power we have should elevate our perspective on how we view ourselves and how we view the world's problems and how we view God and then most importantly, how you and I pray. Prayer is how we fight this battle. In prayer, we learn to rule and reign with Christ. When we pray, we find different ways to implement God's power. We call God's power to this situation in our place, right here on earth. We don't need to surrender anymore. Our authority comes from the fact that the war has already been won. It's, we've won the battle, we've won the war. Now all that's happening is the cleanup of this all. And Revelation says this, Revelation says that Satan uh, is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. And so this is his last ditch effort to do something great and try and fight back, but it's all futile because he's already lost. Death has been defeated. 
Sin has been forgiven. N.T. Wright says, when we pray, deliver us from evil, it's to inhale the victory of the cross and thereby hold the line for another moment, another hour, another day against the forces of destruction that are in this world. So when we cry out for loved ones to be healed, we're praying a spiritual battle. When we pray for our friends to find freedom, that's a spiritual battle. When we pray against the injustices that happen, that's a spiritual battle. We, it's agonizing when the healing doesn't come. It's agonizing when our friends have the free choice to choose another way to live life. It's agonizing when that happens. But does that mean the, bat, the war is lost? No. We keep praying. We keep fighting. We don't give up because we are sure that ultimate victory has been won. An illustration that's always used is the World War II illustration. When D-Day happened, Germany was essentially done. Did they keep fighting? Yes. Did hard battles occur after that? Absolutely. The Battle of the Bulge, all the way through France, there were still hard battles to be won, but Germany was defeated. And they knew it. And so they threw everything at the Allied forces. The same thing is true here. We've already won. D-Day has happened on the cross. The enemy's been vanquished. Now we have to clean up the fight and finish it. So how do we fight this battle? We should ask ourselves three questions when we have any conflict and when we're praying for any conflict or spiritual battle. There's more questions to ask. This is a topical, this is the top surface of all of this. We can dive deep into this if you want, and I'd be happy to help you. Uh, The first question we ask is, what is the enemy's strategy against this person or against this place? What's Satan trying to do? I'm entering into this conversation. I'm praying for this person who is going through something. What is Satan trying to do in this person? And we use discernment. We'll need common sense. Sometimes it'll be obvious. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes we'll need wisdom. Because not everything that happens is demonic. Uh, Whenever we talk about this, we'll think, well, everything evil, everything bad is Satan. No. Sometimes there's just bad things happen because we live in a broken world. There's a lot of rocks out there, and some of them have demons behind them, but not all of them do. And so we need to have discernment about what's happening, and then we we pray against it. In 1 Corinthians 12, one of the spiritual gifts that Paul gives us, and he lists a whole bunch of them, but one of them is to distinguish spirits. It's, it's, uh, It's right alongside the gift of prophecy. It's right alongside the gift of tongues and healing. And then he says the power or the gift to distinguish spirits. Is this something Satan is doing? Is Satan at work here? How can I pray against it? And the distinguishing is what is his tactic in this place? Some of you know you have this. Some of you can be in a situation and all of a sudden you have this radar ping that goes up on you. And I tried to think of a clever, funny name about that, but I couldn't. But it's, it, if you have any ideas, shout them out. But it's this idea of this is different than other situations. I get these weird chills where I don't normally get chills. Uh, a friend of mine will will have a, a bodily reaction when he's around something that is purely satanic and he can understand because he has that gift of distinguishing spirits and he can go, that's evil, that's Satan. And I'm going to go pray against it. What is Satan trying to do here? It's sort of the alarm telling him and, and me that, hey, it's, this is time to fight. This is time to not back down. This is time to pray in a certain direction because Satan is trying to work in this way or that way. And I'm going to pray against that. It's time to ask what Satan's doing in this situation. And then you pray for God to work against it. 
That's how you fight. You ask the question, what is Satan doing here? The second way, what's the enemy strategy? The second way is what does God have that's better here? What's the better situation that God wants? My, I have a friend named Ryan, um, and, and when, when he does this, he's on the prayer team at his church. He lives back in Tennessee. And, and so he'll be praying for people, and he'll walk up to somebody, and his spiritual radar still don't have a good name for it, Spearedar, but there we go. Uh, but he'll come up, and he'll, he'll see someone praying. He's on the prayer team, and he'll put his hands on this person on their back or something. And all of a sudden, he gets hit with something, and he knows. He gets tears in his eyes. And then he does this. He says, God, what, what's your better story for this person here? It's the gift of prophecy, spiritual discernment prophecy. And he's able to speak truth into this person's life and say, this is what God is trying to tell you right now. And it counters all the lies that the devil is trying to use in this person's life. And there's freedom in that place because he's discerned what's going on in their life. And now he's asking God, God, what is your better story in this? What's the enemy's strategy? What's God's better plan? And then finally, what can we do now? The first thing that we can do is primarily, is prayerfully and practically, what's the first thing we could do to thwart Satan's plan and welcome God's, God's better plan into the situation? Sometimes it's simple. Remind yourself or the person you're praying for of God's promise. Or what can you do now to welcome God's better, better plan for this person? Is there a verse that comes into your mind? Is there something that you know that is God's truth that, that, you can, that, that you can speak into this person to, to tell them this is what you should do now. This is what God is trying to do now. This is where we get our weapons. This is where the full armor of God comes in. The only military piece of hardware that we get to fight this, it's not spears, it's, it's, it's no flaming arrows, there's no battery rams or fighter jets. This is precisely what God used to, or what Jesus used to fight Satan in the desert. He counters every temptation, every lie with a verse from the Bible. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges thoughts and attitudes from the heart. In Ephesians 6, Paul begins to talk about the armor of God too. Uh, we, we don't have time to cover all of that today, but I want to look at two aspects. Paul tells us there in Ephesians 6 to also pick up a sword. Both the sword in Hebrews and the sword that he talks about in Ephesians are the gladius swords. It's the swords that the gladiator used. If you know the movie, it's the double-edged ones. Sometimes they're small like a dagger. Sometimes they're about 15 to 20 inches long. They're swords. They're what the legionnaires used. It's a picture that Paul is, is drawing here that we are able to also pick up our sword, the, spirit of, uh, the word of the Lord, and use it swiftly and effectively. And both these authors say the same thing. This is how we fight. So how do you actually fight with the Bible? Let's say, for example, this is purely random. It might happen to me a lot. You wake up in the morning, and then there is this sense of doom and gloom. You can't get out of it. You're fearful. You think the whole world's going to come down on you. There's no way that you can survive the future. Everything about you is doomed. And maybe you've had these. Maybe you don't. Uh, maybe it's something else. And so... What do we usually do in that situation? What, are we, what am I tempted to do? Swim in that fear, right? 
I tend to believe the lies. What should we do? Pick up your sword. This is what the Bible says. Matthew, 26, uh, Matthew 6, 26. Look at the birds of the air. Do they not sow and reap, store away in barns? And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? So what does that do? You're afraid of the future. Satan's going, ha, this person's afraid of the future. I'm going to use this. And sometimes he wins. But then you can pick up your Bible, open it up, read that, and then you see God's promising, God's promises. And says, you don't need to fear this. You don't need to be afraid of this. I take care of the birds. I can take care of you. Uh, this is why some of you know that I really like to watch birds. I have bird. I don't. I don't get all geeked out. And sorry if you do this. I called you a geek, but I don't go with binoculars and looking for everything. But I have little reminders around my house. I carry a bird whistle in my pocket. It's a reminder for me that when I'm fearful, when Satan tries to use the tactic of fear of the future on me or fear of current situations, that am I not more important to God than the birds? I'm picking up the sword and I'm swinging it back. I'm fighting. God will take care of me. I choose to believe this. And I've just stepped on the battlefield. I refuse to panic. I'm not going to be afraid. And in doing so, I reject the lie that I'm continually missing out, that everyone else is moving ahead and I'm getting left behind. That's how you wield your sword. I'm seated with Christ in the heavenly places. He's on my side. I don't need to feel guilty or ashamed. I am a child of God. I don't need to be living in regret from my past because why? That's gone. Satan likes to remind you of everything bad you've done. And the cliche is if you want to fight this, remind him of everything good Christ has done. That's my past. You can't use it against me because God doesn't. And when we do that, we can say, in the name of Jesus, Satan... Get lost. Or if you have other colorful language you want to use in that situation, feel free. James reminds us this, that when we resist the devil, the devil will flee. And you'll be amazed at how quickly and effective a prayerful resistance can, can push away the cowardly Satan when he's confronted with Scripture and prayer. This is also one of the reasons that spending time in your Bibles is good and should be done. If you're in a fight, you need to know your weapon. My dad was in boot camp, and they spent weeks teaching him how to take apart his weapon and put it back together and then take it apart again and then do it blindfolded and all of those things. Why? Because he's in a fight. This is what he uses, and he needs to know it well. Same with us. How do you fight this? First you pray, but then you learn how to use your sword. You memorize scripture that when the devil starts attacking you, you can fight right back to it. We need to know your weapon. You need to know your fight. You need to know your authority behind it. Another aspect of the armor of God is that it's also used for this, standing your ground. Uh, Ephesians 6 says it this way, put on the full armor of God so that you may stand against the devil's schemes. In verse 13, he says, so that when the devil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. In verse 14, stand firm with the belt of truth around your waist. There are times when we get up and fight and we, we go on the offensive. But I think most of us need to look at this, this part today and say, stand your ground. Don't give in. 
There's times where we resist. Paul's emphasis here is clearly on a courageous resistance. You and I live in a culture that constantly pushes us to give in, to give up, to compromise both our core beliefs and our lifestyles. And one of the ways that Satan works is by popular choice. Well, everybody else is doing it. I heard this in D.A.R.E. growing up, the Drug Awareness Resistance Education Doctor, Officer Break Bill. And he said, peer pressure, peer pressure. Everybody else is doing this, so you should do it too. And then when you don't do this, you feel isolated. You feel like you're, you don't fit in. Everybody else believes this is okay. Why shouldn't I? And then the temptation is, well, what's the big deal? If everybody else thinks they're right, I must be the wrong one. And so you give up. Why shouldn't you? You're alone. You're isolated in your beliefs. You might be wrong. So what's the big deal if you surrender an inch? It's not like you're giving them the whole mile. So you back up an inch. And a couple months later, they uh, comes back at you and another onslaught. Well, everybody else is thinking this. I'll just move back another inch. It's fine. It's fine. They can be right too, and I can be right. That's not true. Uh, but I'll just, I'll just tolerate this, and tolerance is a virtue, so we'll tolerate. Uh, by the way, whenever tolerance is used in the scripture, it's always bad. And so tolerance is not something that we should normally do. But there's things we tolerate, and there's a lot of other things we should not. But they come at you, and then you move back another inch, and then you move back another inch, and pretty soon you've surrendered three miles. You thought you were just giving up an inch. How does Satan move you? Inch by inch. A ship at sail in the ocean, if it's one degree off, will miss its target by miles and miles and miles. So Paul says, stand firm. Peter says to stand firm. We don't compromise. We don't, we don't tolerate things that are clearly against what Jesus has said. This is what the armor of God was meant to do. In spiritual warfare, it's not big chunks that we're fighting over. It's small steps that we're pushing against. This is why James says to resist. This is why Paul says to stand firm. Peter says to hold fast to what is true. And this is why Jesus says, deliver us from evil. Because it's constantly pushing you. And so when we pray, we stand and then we have to act. Today, you might feel the pressure. There's a whole bunch of pressure happening today. You might feel the pressure to compromise your beliefs. You might feel the pressure to give in. You might feel the pressure to accept what God has clearly said not to accept. Spiritual warfare for you might just be plant your feet firm, get your sword out, and resist it. You might think you're all alone, but you're not. One of my favorite stories that uh, in, in, in scriptures, it comes from 2 Kings 6. And I was listening to Dylan and his crew warm up today and do the sound check. And it, it, it hit me. There's this, it's a Elisha and King Aram didn't like Elijah. This is Shah, not Jah. So this is the SH guy. This is the one that comes later. And, uh, and, and so King Aram wanted to go get Elisha. And Elisha's in his in his house with his servant and, and the whole army of King Aram comes and they're coming to arrest him and his servant looks outside and looks and goes oh man we're doomed because he sees this entire army coming against him and Elisha just I can see him just kind of over in the corner flipping his eggs or whatever they ate like eh whatever and then he, he says to them in the key verses in verse 16 and 17 and Elisha says Lord give him eyes to see what you're doing here. 
And then he says, go look again. And the servant goes out to look again. And not only did he see King Aram's army, but he saw the Lord's army surrounding them. And they were big, bigger and nastier and had better weapons. And it gave him peace. And then Elijah said, strike that army with blindness, Lord. And they ended up killing themselves. It's the same with us. In spiritual warfare, oftentimes we feel isolated, that we can't do anything about it. And my prayer for us, as we pray the same prayer, deliver us from evil, is that we would be given eyes to see that we don't fight alone. You have authority over this evil that's around you. You have a king who's already defeated it. You're stronger than you think. We just need to get in the battle. We need to pray against it. And so we pray the same thing that Jesus says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us, give us our today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And deliver us from evil. Would you pray with me? Father, you are fighting battles all around us right now in this room before we even got here when we woke up we entered a battlefield and lord i pray for my friends here now and those online or those who will be listening to this later in the week that their eyes would be opened that satan is working everywhere around us and rather than sit down and blame the objects we would be able to name the evil behind it. And we'd be able to fight the evil behind it. Lord, I pray that we would know our authority that comes from you, that comes from your work on the cross, that comes from your victory that you've already won. God, most of all, I pray that we would fight. Elijah was afraid that he was the only one and you reminded him that no, I've set aside thousands of others with you. Elisha's servant thought that they were outnumbered and then he opened his eyes and he saw that there were thousands with him. Lord, we fight a battle. Would we lean into how to be equipped? Would we lean into your authority? And may we see victories. And I don't know what's with you today. I don't know what's going on, but perhaps you feel like you're in the middle of something now. Depression, anxiety. Perhaps there's a situation that's pushing against you. Maybe you're being pushed to do something you don't want to do. God, I pray that you would be with this person. That you would strengthen them. God, I pray that you would fight on their behalf and that they would fight too. May they lean in to who you are and what you've already done. God, may they fight. Can't sit down anymore, Lord. God, we fight because you won this battle on the cross, and we thank you for that today. And it's in your name we pray.